Hi, and welcome to episode number 12 in the Signal Integrity Journal's Fundamentals Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bogatin. I'm the technical editor of the Signal Integrity Journal. This episode is brought to you thanks to our friends at Rodian Schwartz. Today, I'm pleased to have with us Jason Ellison. Jason is a principal signal integrity engineer at Amphenol, where he's active leading the efforts at designing the next generation connectors for 112 gigabit systems and above. Join me in my conversation where I catch up with Jason and learn the challenges and solutions for 112 gigabit per second systems. So Jason, thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, I wanted to get a little background of how you got into signal integrity and doing what you're doing now. So uh, let's see, you got your master's at, was it Penn State? Yeah, Penn State. And when was that? That was 2017. Oh, okay. So I did it while I was working. Wow. And and so before that, you were involved in signal integrity and, and in, in the connector area. What were you doing uh, right out of school? Right. Uh, right out of school, I started at Tyco Electronics, which is now TE. And then I moved over to FCI which became Amphenol. And I took a short hiatus at uh, the Siemens company in Connecticut and came back to Amphenol. Wow. So you've been in the connector field the whole, the whole, your whole career path. Yeah. Um, you know, mostly IO and now it's all backplane, um, but it has been high speed communications the whole time. And why did you decide to go for a master's in the middle of uh, being working in industry? <laughs> well, I was at design con one year because I got involved with SciCon a lot due to demonstrations. And I asked someone from Texas Instruments, what would it take to get hired at TI? Because at the time, I was very interested in working at TI. And uh, they said, if you don't have a master's degree, we throw your resume right in the trash. Wow. Yeah. So I uh, I said, I, I think I would like to get a master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> And that was pretty tough, you know, while you're working in the industry and you have a family to do a master's as well. It was not hard because I did not have a family yet. Ah, okay. So, so I would, it's not that it was easy, <laughs> but compared to having children, it was a breeze. You know, like <laughs> I, I did a one class a semester. Uh, I, I usually took the class from six to nine on Wednesdays and there was work and, the people at Penn State were really good to work with. Um, there were times where I was traveling in China, and this was before COVID, and I asked them if I could take the classes remotely while I was in China, and they were they, you know, they helped me out. We got on a, I think it was Skype at the time, and uh, I'd wake up at three in the morning, go to class, and then go to work. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. but it was, I mean, I really appreciated how flexible they were to help me it was great have you found that um in in amphenol that your masters has helped you that there is benefit in having the masters yeah oh yeah <laughs> it's it's kind of surprising it was i should say it was surprising for me because when i got my bachelor's degree i thought man i know all kinds of stuff these people with master's degrees they think they're you know i thought they had chips on their shoulders i didn't really think of it too much as that it really gave them a lot more, you know, and the reason there is reasonable thought behind this. I was like, well, I went to school for four years and a master's degree is only two more years. 
when I go for my two-year or my four-year degree, I'm in the lab all the time. And I know that the folks doing master's degrees are never in the lab. So I was like, how, how could this be that a master's degree really makes someone so much better? And then when I went to school and I, I finally went through the classes and went through the experience of learning how to do research properly and uh, applied that to work every semester, I found, wow, this is actually invaluable to my, to my surprise. You know, I really, I thought I was going to school more so to get a piece of paper than anything else. But in the end, I found that journey really accelerated my growth as far as being an engineer. Wow, that's really interesting. So, because I encounter a lot of other engineers that are thinking about doing a master's, um, and you know, we're offering this professional master's program here at uh, University of Colorado in Boulder, and uh, it sounds like um, there's a lot of advantage if you want to if you want to excel in the in the real advanced technology area. It sounds like master's is going to be a, a really valuable asset to have. You know, I, I think it it depends on the person for sure, and and how, um, how they intend to apply their degree. Um, but I would say it gives you the tools to think properly as more of a scientist than simply an engineer. Cause you sometimes, you know, I think of an engineer as someone who has building blocks and takes these building blocks that they're given to solve known problems. And then when you have that, science background it enables you to ask the right questions and follow a organized or an organized path to get to the answer and i don't think that you get that until you've gone through a master's program mm -hmm. and i think truly the the difference is in the in the bachelor's program you're learning all of these fundamentals in the masters you're applying them and you're you're going through papers recreating results and it forces you into that framework of finding or asking questions and finding answers. You do that for four to six years and it kind of sits, you know, you get it, you get in a, a healthy habit of performing in that, in that way. And as a, as a principal engineer, you're leading the way, you're not uh, taking direction from someone, you're creating the, the pathway. And it sounds like the skills you picked up from your master's degree have really been critical in uh, being a principal engineer. Oh yeah, I, wouldn't, I would not have gotten the title otherwise <laughs> because uh, a lot of what I've had to do at Amphenol was definitely against the grain. You know, I saw what was happening in the industry and uh, initially management didn't agree and for good reason. You know, I was promoting channel view of looking at our components. So, you know, I cannot look at our components in the vacuum must be put into a channel. We must look at the channel uh, performance at the end and find where the noise sources are instead of isolating the connector. And, and that was really a, a success, the, the successful mindset that was disagreed upon initially. Hmm. Uh, reason being that when we go to customers, they don't ask us about channel performance. They ask us about connector performance and they give us uh, S parameter masks that they're interested in seeing. So when when we provide these S parameter masks, that's typically the sniff test a customer likes to use. 
And I was promoting, no, we can't do that. We, we need to show these parts working in a channel under stressed conditions. And then by doing that, we'll convince the customers that the component is adequate for the application. And that turned out to be wildly successful. And I was for a good two, three years, you know, was pretty much in a weekly conversations saying, I don't know that you're going down the right path. <laughs> so what sort of um, systems were these PCI Express or were they Ethernet? It was mostly Ethernet because the product I was working on was intended for 112 gig Ethernet applications. Wow. Uh, also, OI, you know, the OIF Ethernet uh, environment. And so is that the kind of the product family you've been mostly involved with over the last four or five years at Infinal? It is, yeah. There, there, there was a need for a 112G backplane connector when I showed up, and everyone was already swamped. So I volunteered, and uh, and that is what I've been working on. And it is interesting to consider, you know, I'm talking about IEEE, and the big difference between IEEE and PCI Express is latency, whereas IEEE takes a hit in latency due to forward error correction. PCI Express isn't willing to take that hit. I think they're going to take a small hit in the future with a a less aggressive forward air correction scheme. But but having less forward air correction really does impact the difficulty in making a channel work. It's somewhat surprising when you've been working on I, in IEEE land forever, and then you go to lower speeds in PCI Express and think it's going to be easy. And it it's a lot more difficult than than you expect. <laughs> so let's see if I understand that. So uh, for one twelve, you know, I've been playing around and investing in the comms com uh, figure of merit, and with four error correction, the the bit error ratio you can tolerate is like ten to the minus six. And I think isn't PCI Express the bit error ratio is ten to the minus twelve? That's about right. So the 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 com standard in IEEE for one twelve, the limit. They call it the detected error rate, and that's supposed to be the limit for the forward error correction to achieve 1e minus 12. That detected error rate they're interested in is 1e minus 4. Our wow. customers will tell us wow. that that should be 1e minus 6. And I'm starting to, and we're, we're trying to investigate why that is. I think that our customers see it as a safety margin, which totally makes sense to me. Uh -huh. You know, like you're building a bridge. You double the safety margin, right? Yeah. Where we're in electrical engineering, we do mag orders of magnitude of error rate in these high speed communications. Yeah. But I think there's more to it than that, and that's why I, that the, I really like the COM script. I think it, I think COM in general was a huge, um, uh, how do I say it? it was a huge uh, donation or or uh, you know uh, <laughs> trying to look for the word here. A, uh, kind of a contribution but yes was, that's was the it? word i'm looking for thank you yeah. <laughs> it was a huge contribution to the industry because before com came out um we we did not look at channels statistically and it opened to me it opened all these doors to really look at how a channel works properly um using statistics and when we think about it in terms of uh like if you then you you look at com you understand it then you move outside of com and say well how what are other ways that we're that people look at channels and you look at peak distortion analysis and then you start to see differences 
And then you can also see differences when you apply the interference equation in Kong, or if you apply the uh, statistical uh, normal distribution of noise using the same values to calculate both. And you can overlay them. You can see how they vary. There's calculation timing differences, um, accuracy differences. And then you, you really start to learn more about why it's so difficult to quantify how a channel is going to work in the end. And then you could also pull back from that more, call them deficiencies, but they're really kind of like, you know, just things that are put in place in COM to simplify the equation or make them standardized. Like the reference impedance is, a, is one number. Well, we know that that's not true. It's frequency dependent. But that frequency dependency at the receiver is completely ignored. So, so that would be a great reason for a customer to say, I don't agree that I need 1E minus 4. I need 1E minus 6. And they could be trying to account for you know, some of those differences as well. So, so it's really interesting to me to still peel back the layers of what causes or, or what is causing bit error rate uh -huh. in order to better help our customers make robust solutions. Well, you said that um, you felt that uh, 112 gigabit might be easier to design than a than a 32 bit or 32 gigabit PCI Express like Gen Gen 5. So part of that is the bit error ratio spec is re relaxed. But isn't also the silicon equalization that's being used in in um, uh, uh, in, in the gigabit or the the gigabit Ethernet standards? Um, it's a lot more equalization capability than in PCI Express. I think the big difference there is the incorporation of uh, DSP in IEEE. So right now in channel operating margin it doesn't consider DSP. It considers the system as completely analog, when in reality, all 112 systems use some sort of DSP, right? Um, which is really interesting because we're starting to dig into what DSP is actually doing. And it has a fairly significant impact on how you equalize the channel. So it's almost right now at 112, even though there's agreement that if you pass COM with the parameters that they give you use in an analog system, that it will work with, with silicon that's operating with DSP, it, it really is a little, there's probably subtle nuances there that really are meaningful that we don't pick up on yet, uh, as at least as uh, physical layer component suppliers. Um, and conversely, in, in PCI Express to try to, Get towards the answer to your question they're completely analog so they they it, you know with maybe the exception of uh decision feedback equalizer because that's you know that's a that's not a linear um a linear equalization scheme and they, and they still use it but really to, the only difference i see is that integration of of uh dsp between the two. And is, is DSP different from equalization? I mean, oh, it's much DSP? different. What, what is DSP in, in this context? So I'm still learning about it uh, myself. So I can't, I can't uh, really explain it well, just because I'm not knowledgeable enough yet. But one of the, like, so, so equalization, we talk about CTLEs, continuous time linear equalizers, uh, FFEs, 
and decision feedback equalizers. Okay, and the, all of these things, what they're doing is they're affecting the spectrum in the frequency domain to try to make it flat. You know, ideally, uh, an equalizer is one over your channel yeah. so that your insertion loss and phase are zero. But in reality, what it it's usually like some flat curve that's lower. So the eye height is smaller, but there's no uh, amplitude dispersion, if you will. Yeah. Of course, you can't reverse phase, right? There's no chip that's going to make your signals go back in time. But... Um, but that doesn't matter. The phase, the phase equalization is irrelevant. The in um, in DSP, it's different. So the one um, there, there's several DSP techniques I think that are being used right now. The one I'm most familiar with is called a maximum likelihood sequence detection. And what that does, at least <laughs> my understanding is, it looks at the sequence and tries to predict what the sequence is. Um, and using that information somehow. It, it cleans up the signal some order of mag magnitude. And I'm, I, that's where I start to lose uh, what's going on. I haven't been able to, to dig in deep enough yet to get farther than that. And do you think that's intimately tied in with the forward error correction code? That It's um... not. It's still before the forward error correction code, at least how I understand it. So, I, you know, I'm <laughs> my view is is uh, from the outside in on I, uh, Surdy's IP. But uh, it seems to me that the, it goes through an equalization stage that may or may not include DFE because I'm not sure if you would still use a DFE if you're using DSP. Um, then it would go through the DSP stage where you're you're going to clean up the best you can, and then you have your ones and zeros, and then it goes into the forward correction phase where it does the you know the algorithm to check if the ones and the zeros are making sense. That's how I understand it. I could be off. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be some people listening saying like, yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> and that's, that's totally fair because I'm still learning. <laughs> well, you know, we focus so much on the physical layer technology and there is so much that's being done in the silicon side of the processing to clean up the the distortions that the the physical layers create. Um, it's it's hard to keep, keep up with both of the, the two very very different fields it is because that in my opinion it's because the fields are different i've read these papers about using ml or uh, mlsd in high-speed interconnects and it is <laughs> the language is different than we're used to it's not it's it's you know it's it's outside of the, the normal linear systems uh type of approach so um, i'm looking at it like yeah i'm gonna have to you know, we have to learn new terminology, new new approaches to this to the problem, which is one of the reasons why signal integrity is great because it keeps it really does not uh, stay stagnant for long. <laughs> and once you think you've got the the technology down, something new pops up, and uh, and you have to keep learning, which is really nice from a technology standpoint. Yeah. So let's go back to something else you mentioned that that in. In the 112 um, gigabit channels, um, that uh, it's a little easier to design uh, because of the 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 spec is reduced and the silicon processing is 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 uh, a lot more going on there. You know, I've seen and and you said that it's really hard to separate a component performance in the whole, and and is that because it inter each component interacts 
in a nonlinear way so that you can't define a specification for each component and expect to have compliance with the reasonable margins? Mm. I think it's more so it's not obvious how how they're going to behave. I think once you look at it long, once you look at channels long enough, you can start to get a feel for uh, when things are going to break. But what it comes down to is uh, there. There's definitely well. First of all, we look we look at things in the time or the frequency domain primarily, but re in reality, everything is important in time more so than frequency. So it's not until you get to the time domain that all of the the blemishes really show up. And when when we talk about looking at a component versus a channel, when you when you're used to looking at a component, things look terrible. You know, return loss is really high. Uh, relative everything I'm going to say is relatively speaking. Crosstalk could look relatively high. Um, of course, insertion loss is low, but your ILD on your insertion loss looks looks crazy high. But then when you put everything into a channel. All the all the filtering from the traces, it appears to clean everything up, and I use the word appear because it doesn't clean everything up, right? So all the frequency mass that you were previously looking at are now worthless if you're looking at a channel versus a component. But the mm. channel is really what matters. So then, what you need to do is go into the time domain and look at all the sources of noise for each one of those components, and and try to see well why is the component causing these noise sources in this way, uh, in this channel. And, and uh, you know, what can I do to make this better? Or, or um, you know, are there some things that I need to consider that there's a location on the board where this component will work and where it won't work? Mm -hmm. so, so a good example of that is the idea of reflections and near-end crosstalk, because you brought up near-end crosstalk. And it's interesting that channel operating margin adds a 1.5 uh, ratio to the the, the uh, excitation of near-end crosstalk sources. Um, so in near-end crosstalk, your your uh, crosstalk source, your primary crosstalk source, is going to be one that's closest to your transmitter because it's not going to get attenuated through the whole channel. All the far end gets attenuated, so the far end is usually the most benign. Um, but near end, if you have a high source near end crosstalk and a channel that's marginal in terms of loss, your signal noise ratio is going to take a huge hit. And so there and, could be a. Com and, and that's when you have the transmit next to the receiver. So the receiver is getting the, the losses in the channel, but it's getting the crosstalk right from the high level from the transmitter. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because it's the, the signal gets attenuated. If, if, say, it's like a trace to a connector trace connector trace and that first trace is only an inch long and say the rest of your channel is like 20 inches so you have one inch of dampening for your, or two inches of dampening for your near and crosstalk where your signal is going through 21 inches of of loss so so you don't and in far end crosstalk you get that 21 inches of dampening where in near end crosstalk and reflections mm -hmm. you get only two inches of dampening and so that's that noise it, the signal noise ratio goes way down um, very quickly. And so if you say you have a connector system that has, uh, let's say equal effects to next and, and customers, and it's at some level that customers are comfortable with, but then they try to start, they start pushing the envelope and they're like, oh wow, well the near end crosstalk is really limiting. <laughs> and, that, and that is a, so you always wanna see interconnects that have superior near end crosstalk than far end crosstalk if possible because 
that's that's what allows you more design flexibility um, so that you can put your connector in different locations. And with the way things are built today and the expenses of, the, of these chat or these printed circuit boards, everyone wants to cram as much stuff into the smallest space possible. So it's not uncommon to see Surrey's right next to a, a crosstalk source, like a connector system. So are you, are you finding that um, near-end crosstalk can be uh, a very significant um, lim limitation in the performance of a channel? Yeah, there's there's two primary limitations, in my opinion, of of 112G stuff, uh, and that would be near-end crosstalk and reflections. And quite frankly, the reflections are worse. So the, the near-end crosstalk is, is most limiting in systems where you have these multiple jumps, right? Like, you know, you don't just have like one interconnect, you have several and, um, and it's very long. So you have a relatively high source of noise in a relatively long channel. And, um, and if you can successfully separate your near and cross near end and far end aggressors in a way where your near end's not so bad, which is quite honestly, pretty common. Um, you're then going to suffer from reflections. And even in that case, I think reflections currently are still something that the industry as a whole hasn't come to terms with that, like how important it is. Cause in, in terms of percentages, when I run uh, customer channels through channel operating margin, they have that really nice uh, contribution uh, slide that, or figure that pops up. And the, uh, the reflections are always 20 to 30% of the noise source. Whereas the crosstalk, even in, even in the worst cases, it's usually only 10%. So reflections are always dominating in these channels. Wow. Where do you find most of the reflections coming from? A big portion is the package. Even though the package uh, does get canceled out a lot by DSP, or I'm sorry, DFE, uh, the longer packages still can play, in it, play a role, like the 30, the 30 millimeter packages. Uh, other than that, it's uh, footprint and interconnect. You know, like footprint of the BGA, footprint of the connector itself, any any near anything that is relatively close to the transmitter, uh, the reflections do not get uh, attenuated. And it becomes like if you ever do a, a channel analysis and do a pulse response, vary the the first the length of the first trace between the first uh, or the thirties and the first uh, reflection source, you'll see that there is a direct relationship between how much reflection noise is going to uh, come into the system in that length. But if you have a reflection from, you know, a connector, for example, in order for it to have an impact at the receiver, it's got to reflect somewhere else as well. So is it reflecting off of the transmitter? Well, that's a good question. I, I it's hard to say uh, for me right now, because I haven't, I haven't looked into the relationship of where the reflections show up in the pulse response in time and how that relates to the system. Like if it's one point, what would it be? It would be, if it was three X the, the length, then it would be, it was bouncing off the transmitter and going back through. Um, but I'm not sure. Uh, I could just tell you that, uh, that you can see it in the pulse response. Okay. You know, it's a, it's a very obvious visual blemish wow. where, uh, where you could, you see, you know, the pulse response should be after the equalization portion, it should be dead flat. And anything that's showing up that's not flat is either from numerical noise or it's from the uh, something in the channel causing a reflection. And that's that's really what to look for. Um, 
I wish I could tell you more about the actual physics behind it, but I haven't gotten there. <laughs> I just know that I could I could absolutely relate a, a bump in the pulse response to a impedance discontinuity in a channel. So from a connector vendor's perspective, if these are the two big problems at uh, 112 of, of uh, reflections and crosstalk, you can design a connector that has a lot of reduced reflections and crosstalk, but it's how your customer integrates it into their system where a lot of those problems can arise as well. Oh, and yes. How do you deal with that part of it where it's outside of what you can build and what you can supply, but it's still related to how the customer uses your component? So we've actually designed tools to take away some of the uncertainty for our components or our, sorry, our, our customers. And those tools are like uh, routing guides that give you engineering, like it makes, it does the engineering decision for you. So it says, if you're using a dielectric constant of such and such, this is going to be the anti-pad size and shape that you need to make this work. Um, it defines all of the, the, the necessary features in terms of like back drill, pad sizes, all that kind of stuff in the footprint. And then in addition, we have a very specific way that the trace needs to leave the connector. And because it's so specific and it's actually algorithm based, it's not even, you know, just like rule based. Um, we, we developed a tool that we give to our customers that they, they put in their trace width and space. They hit go and it creates a DXF for them to put it in their, their uh, Allegro tool. So they don't even have to do the, the shaping of the trace traces. It does it for them. Wow. And so that helps to uh, minimize the impact of the from from the uniform transmission line in the in the routing fields to the breakout field where the VSR and your connector is going to be. Uh, you you provide that additional information for your customer of how to optimize that part of their design. Oh, absolutely. And it's critical if you if you don't have I mean, the footprint is the foundation of of the connector. If that thing doesn't look good, it doesn't matter how good your connector is, the channel's going to fail. So, so we wanted to make sure that the customer had everything they need to, and to, to do this the same way we do. Um, and I, I found, or I, my personally thought if they didn't have that, then we would, we would be doing ourselves a disservice in addition to our customers. And so you find the combination of your connector family and this breakout region, the optimized breakout region, um, uh, that allows customers to integrate uh, multiple connectors in a channel and achieve the 112 uh, gigabit performance. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've more than convinced myself of this because when I was doing the connector development, um, I I put the the final connector model through all of the rigors I could possibly think of to try to break it in terms of the standard. And I found in all reasonable scenarios, um, like all scenario, I shouldn't say all reasonable ones, it's all scenarios that were within the specification, you know, like the longest lengths possible, how, how close the connector can possibly be to the 30, physically speaking, you know, like unless the connector was literally right on top of it somehow. Um, you know, so I put it in every way possible. I, I set this thing up and I, I did a bunch of comp sweeps, channel simulations. And once once I couldn't get it to break, 
I was satisfied that the connector was going to work. And the interesting thing about that is customers still look at the S parameter performance of this specific interconnect that I'm referring to, and they say, ah, it's not good enough. And, and, and that's where, to tie it back to the masks that we talked about earlier, it's, you, it's, you really can't judge a, an interconnect component by a mask. It, it, it will, it's somewhat of, as a customer, you may, you may be doing yourself a disservice by, um, by thinking something's not going to work when it actually will. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So with all of what you've learned at 112 gigabit, do you think all of that's going to apply to 224 or are there going to be new challenges do you expect in 224 range? They, they are absolutely applicable hundred percent. Um, and in 224, I think the, the big challenge is going to be manufacturing what the customer wants. Things, things both need to be higher density and faster, So, which, which partially is good news because higher density means higher bandwidth, quite frankly. But then uh, the challenge becomes manufacturing, something like that, right? Like I could totally go into CST, select all the parts, scale it by half. And I've got myself a 224 connector. <laughs> <laughs> but if I told my uh, I told my mechanical engineers, oh yeah, all you gotta do is scale it by half, uh -huh. they they they're gonna laugh at me, you know. <laughs> so it's it's finding uh, how to manufacture these things in a way that's you know both it's smaller, so reliability becomes more of an issue then, right? You know, some some of these uh, types of metals. Or some some of the features that we've we were imp implementing, uh, mechanical engineers laugh about. They they say, oh yeah, you know, uh, they say yeah, sometimes I I'm afraid if I look at it the wrong way, it'll it won't it won't <laughs> stay in the right place. You know, this is a, this is early in the design stages. They say this yeah. kind of stuff. You know, before the like when we're doing prototypes. But uh, but yeah, I have heard that comment from some of the <laughs> mechanical engineers. Well, it sounds like, you know, your comment earlier that, you know, with every new technology, there are new increase in data rate. Um, there are new challenges uh, that, you know, keep us learning new design principles and, and new skills. And it sounds like there's that never ending path ahead of us. Uh, oh, I agree. In the future. Yeah, there is no shortage of work. There is no shortage of increase in data rate. Um, and it's it's really fun to see how how it's all coming together, especially... You know, I think when you when you first come into it, it's so overwhelming. You're just you're just trying to uh, stay afloat. But when now when you get comfortable with all the current state of the arts, and then you see something new, it becomes extremely fun and rewarding. Wow, that's great. Well, Jason, that's all the time we have for today. I really appreciate you sharing some of your insights into how to achieve the 112, and we'll be chatting some more in the future about uh, what you've done to achieve the 224 as well. Yeah, so, thanks, Eric. That, that was great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay. And that concludes my interview. My thanks to Jason Ellison for joining us and to Rudy and Schwartz for sponsoring this broadcast. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us. I hope you check out all of our other podcasts at the Signal Integrity Journal. And that's 30 for this edition.